Hello, and welcome back to the HSPAN podcast, your go-to podcast for longevity policy discussion. I'm your host, Dylan Livingston. Today, we will be joined by Joe Betz-Lacroix, CEO of RetroBio. In this episode, I wanted to learn about Joe's journey from computer science to biosciences, get an inside look at what it's like to run a large startup, as well as the importance of collaboration in this field of longevity research. Without further ado, here's Joe Betz-Lacroix. back to another episode of the HSPAN podcast. My guest today is Joe Betz-Lacroix. Joe, it's great to have you on today. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's, I've been meaning to get you on for a while. And so I'm finally, I'm happy I'm finally able to, to figure this out with you. You know, you're, you're definitely one of the well-known, you know, best known people in this longevity industry. So I'm sure people are going to be eager to hear what you say. So that's, this, this is going to be a good conversation. I'm, I'm sure of it. So what I'd like to do to get started is kind of discuss how our guests got involved in the longevity field, because obviously for me as a political person, as a politico, it was it's different for me than it is for you, than it is for the next person. So you, you have a very interesting background, especially in the computer engineering and hardware world. So can you kind of take us through your trajectory, your pathway to get to retro biosciences? Sure. I guess there's like a there's a 30-second version and a 30-minute version. I striking a balance. I got really into electronics as a kid and then computers. This is dating myself at a time when computers are were a very different thing from what people think of them now. But I, I really like designing stuff out of computers and just designing stuff in general and started supporting myself doing computer hardware design starting in high school. And I found i guess one of the things that originally got me to switch from just being like a hardware hacker which i did through high school and then for another six years after that i ran a lab of my own building prototyping selling experimenting with things in the computer hardware and software realm was just how like annoyingly slow computers were at that time and i ended up deciding to bail on the autodidactic path and go off to harvard um, specifically because I, I I thought having started to read a bunch about bio and the rate at which molecules process information, depending how you define what processing information is, they were making like repetitive comparisons of say fit between one protein and another at really high frequencies. Like the enzymes bouncing around and touching their substrates happens at gigahertz, whereas the computers at that time were operating at megahertz. And I thought, and they're, they have like, a billion of them in parallel in one cell. So that's, I mean, depending on the thing, that just seemed like the obvious thing to go off and do. And that's essentially why. When when did cells become less powerful than computers? When was that? Well, there was at least, I had this idea that you should be able to build computing systems out of molecular, you know, biomolecular components. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, I guess, 1986 is when I went off to do that. And I got into the biophysics department at Harvard and I started working with one of the top professors in the field. And basically every question I had about how does this work was, we don't know, nobody knows, which was really kind of unexpected and frustrating for me. So at that point, I decided to bail on bio for a while and just let the field catch up with my sort of sci-fi vision for it. And I went off and did other things for quite a while, including grad school in ocean chemistry. Why not? And I think 
partly because the earth, like I grew up in the Pacific Northwest rainforests, and it felt like an important thing to help preserve some nature the way it is and just understanding how nature works and what's going to happen to climate. Most people weren't thinking about climate change in the late 80s, but it was definitely not. And it's just intellectually really fun. And the people are really chill in the geology space. It's like sure. lab work is essentially like going for a weekend hike into some mountains somewhere where you know there's an exposed face of rock that gives you feedback about what was going on between 57 and 58 million years ago or whatever. Or in some cases for me, lab work was flying in a military transport to the summit of the Greenland ice sheet and drilling cores two kilometers down through the ice sheet in order to explore the last 300,000 years of climate history as recorded in the continuous bands of ice there since it never melts in that region. One of the few places where there's zero melting, only accumulation of snow, which ends up being a record of atmospheric oxygen. So there's bubbles of trapped atmospheric oxygen. That's kind of cool. Also got to go down to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean in a small three-person submarine called Alvin that was also developed at MIT to explore the chemistry of the um, sub the sub-ocean volcanic vents, like these black smoker structures. So like earth science is like really, really cool. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and like fun people and like tough, tough problems and like a really nice ratio of like kind of thinking and hypothesizing and then going out and testing and testing hypotheses. But, not, to mention, not to mention a decent lab space. You get to go out, go to Antarctica and down to the bottom of the ocean. How, how can you complain down there? How can I complain? I, I can Alvin, Alvin failed. Once we reached the bottom of the Pacific, it failed and lost its buoyancy control system. So that was that okay. was a little concerning. But the main thing I was complaining about is mission control saying up 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 above on the ship saying that mm, we should probably abort the mission and like use the, like the emergency buoyancy system. But, uh, wow. Considering this is my one shot at going to the bottom of the ocean and seeing these deep sea volcanic vents, I was like come on no way it's yeah. not that risky let's just take yeah, the mission and then somehow somehow they were persuaded so we got to complete our mission which was great so was that before you went back into the computer hardware space like so it was totally yeah okay. i started seeing and i think it's just my probably my just extremely impatient sort of entrepreneur <laughs> dna or it's like the administration like the dynamics that i saw you know my hero the professor whose lab i was in having to go through in terms of jockeying for grants funding departmental politics all that stuff just seemed horrific you would probably be really good at it not i don't mean that as an insult i just think that like you know. understand people and processes quite well sure. and could probably magically make your 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 department in mit do really well but uh, it's just that environment wasn't for me i like to control a little bit more of my destiny so i went to the san francisco bay area the the land of entrepreneurship and started building companies and never looked back that so it's interesting that you say that because i've i've spoken to people at retro and it seems like other people in 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 retros on Retro's team have like similar kind of mindsets. Specifically, I'm talking about like Alex Trapp. I've talked to him about mm -hmm. this. Bit. I feel like probably the retro framework that you've developed allows for lack of bureaucratic red tape. And I'm sure you're able to kind of do things at the pace you want to do, right? At Retro. So can you kind of tell us about how you, you know, how that experience and how your, I guess, 
your dislike of that sort of academic kind of process and kind of the, the traditional route? Like, so how, how did that kind of inspire what you do at Retro? First, can you actually tell your, our audience a little bit about Retro, what your what your guys' platform is? And then, you know, I, specifically, I'm thinking about your lab setup. What, what, you, what you have in Redwood City is absolutely fascinating. So maybe can you talk about how all of that sort of manifested in, itself into what you have now in retro. Sorry, tough question. That's like, yeah, I think I could probably connect some of the dots there. I think that general MO of setting my sights on a goal and figuring out the shortest line to get there and eliminating complexities and obstacles along the way is like a pretty good generating principle for accomplishing things, at least at least for me. So backing up retro as a startup company, we're about 42 people right now, always growing. And our mission is to extend the healthy human lifespan of humanity by 10 years. And we are fairly free to pursue the sort of types of aging mechanisms and disease indications to go after, funded by Sam Altman of OpenAI fame. And I find myself in the in a sort of like for better and for worse, having a high degree of business autonomy. So Sam is not interested in running my business for me. So it's structured such that I run it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, th- I think that works really well for businesses. And what that means is that I have to make the right choices about what to do and then can't blame someone else. Like for instance, a board of directors for having made choices that I disagree with later when things don't work out. So I take a very high degree of personal responsibility extremely seriously. Of course, I hand as much of it as I possibly can to the leaders that I have here running individual programs. But I guess another thing that allows me to do is by essentially having zero bureaucracy above me, I also have a commitment of essentially zero bureaucracy at at least at this node of like of like the key central leadership position. So I have a commitment to all my team that if there are decisions to be made about, say, purchase orders or other purchase decisions to be made, contracts to approve, NDAs, decisions to be made that are holding holding back progress in any way, then I make them within 24 hours. Okay. So I watch the top of my inbox really carefully for things that are of that class. And I maintain that 24-hour commitment to the team. And so, and, and this is in response to just listening to people like, what slows down companies? What, what have you found to be frustrating in various other structures that you've operated in? And so many of them were, well, you know, we, we put in a purchase request and then it took three weeks for it to come back. But they finally approved the PO and now the vendor's doing their thing, blah, blah, blah. Or this kind of like sense of hopelessness that I hear when I'm talking to some vendor and saying, okay, let's execute an NDA and let's move forward on this. And they're like, okay, well, I'll submit it, but it's going to be at least a week or at least a month or whatever. There's always some like really large amount of time before what seems to me like a relatively trivial decision is going to be made. Right. Because 99% of the time they look at the NDA and like they change the same thing and then they just sign it. So my idea is, or a lot of decisions get pushed, put up, well, there's going to be a quarterly strategy meeting and we can put this proposal on there and we can present it to top management then maybe they'll approve it maybe they won't or maybe they'll make some suggestions and we can refine them until the next quarterly strategy meeting and then so six months later okay this is off and going so like you don't need so i mean you know one of the i'm just thinking of a couple things but you know one of the things i feel like that slows down like, like we're talking about bureaucracy slows things down but it also like shortens 
or like eats at eats at biotech's runway almost, right? Like if it takes a month to get something, you're a month behind, you know, what you could have been doing with that. So it's just interesting that that you're that you're taking this approach. It's like a no nonsense, like let's get this done kind of approach. And that's what it seems to me. And I, you know, I, I I've also you know I talk to people in the space as well, and it's you know it's 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 an interesting approach to. Well, I mean, I, it seems like the right approach to me, but it's 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 a unique approach in you know generally the biopharma world. I feel like right. It's just like a structurally enabled. Like it's I think it. It could be quite hard to implement it. Just be like, oh yeah, we have too much bureaucracy. We're gonna we're gonna get rid of this because like I don't live in fear of a board of directors as a CEO, and so I, I think there tends to be this sort of cascade of fear, especially over biotech funding world, largely having to do with uncertainty around a how biology works, but b probably even more like how like the opacity of how how regulators control like the gateway to the market, and so you know you have like. LPs who want to make sure that that things are structured in a safe way for their capital, and then you have the VCs who are kind of nervous about making sure they don't make mistakes for their LPs, and then and they're the people sitting on on boards, and there are like multiple people on boards who have maybe differing viewpoints or differing and different things they're solving for, none of whom know hardly anything about my business or one's one's business at all, rather than just kind of pattern matching from other things that happened at other businesses. And then, so the CEO then is like, okay, there's a board meeting coming in two, two months from now. I got to start getting ready for that. Okay. It's one month from now. I'm going to have a bunch of my team start making slides. And the team is thinking, well, we know from experience that the CEO wants to show really beautiful data to the board, because if you show crappy data to the board, they're less likely to give you that bridge financing or to talk glowingly to about some other investor who you might want for another another round of capital, et cetera. So, hey, everybody, give me good data to your leaders. And they're reaching out to their team team members and like, what's the good data? And the, so the, if you end up with this general bias, so you have this like cascading fear that then creates a bias for what, like what good data is or like what to show. And so then if you end up with information coming back up the chain where big decisions are made that has a bias in it, then wrong decisions are going to be made. Right. Like, it, it seems like, you know, like, like in those situations, you're trying to please a certain investor or a certain group of investors, you know, ambition to, you know, have, have their capital or, or their funding be good to put to good use or make money off of it, like a return on investment. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like you, you get to kind of not have to deal with any of that. That sounds, sounds, it sounds like it's, 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 it's great, but it's also puts an extra layer of like responsibility on you where it's like the, you know, the buck kind of stops with you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like I have to make real decisions. Right. And in real time, like, on top. Um, like I don't, I, yeah, I don't get to kind of whine and be kind of victim about it. It's just like, okay, I think this is what we should do. Are you guys all in? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. So can you can you tell us how that kind of translates to like the day to day at retro? Like like what what is like so first off, like what does a day to day look like at retro? What are you guys up to? But like also like so you're you're kind of setting the tone for each program. Like how much how much interaction do you have with each program in terms of its vision? Or are you more just like making sure everything's running smoothly across all programs? Like what's what's your what what do you do on your day to day? I'm a really kind of odd hybrid between kind of hands-off and very empowering to my group leaders and like horrifically micromanaging <laughs> hopefully the best of both worlds but if some of my team is listening to this and they think it's the worst then then i really <laughs> implore you to let me know but i think that i essentially have like five independent 
sort of CSOs who run these five different research programs we have, broadly lumpable into three, and they make almost all the decisions. But I also stay as informed as I can, which is most of the time pretty well informed, I think, about what's actually going on. So I just, I have the the sort of extra lucky coincidence, I guess, of just like really loving science and really, really being pretty into biology and method both. It's not really a job for you at, 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 at looking at it like that. Like you, you're you're there learning, right? Yeah. You know, oh yeah. I mean, process. I mean, just with a, a slight digression, the idea of a job in and of itself is a bit of an alien concept to me. And it's, yeah, it tends to be a bit of like end of the interview kind of question if I get from somebody like, how's the work-life balance? Because like, but like, we're like, this is your prime time. This is your biological prime time. Like you show up at five days a week at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. Or, or, and like you've had your coffee and your mind is raring to go. And this is your life. This is your chance to like create that thing that is the manifestation of your own brilliance and motivation and, and values, right? If that's a dead time for you and some other time is considered life, then that, then that, that it just it feels so tragic, right? Like I want it to be someone who perceives this is substantially their life. Right. They may come home afterward and, and like have a beer and kind of relax and watch a Netflix or like whatever chit chat with people or like lots of different things people do. But, and you know, that's, that's another part of life. Right. Uh, Doing something you're truly passionate about is, you know, that, I mean, that, that's not a job, right? I mean, what's the, the old cliche saying is like, if you're, if you enjoy your job, then it's not a job at all. Or I don't know what the saying is, oh, yeah. but that, that, that's, it's completely true. Right. I mean, if you're pursuing something you're truly passionate about, it's, it's not really a job. It's more just your way of life. And I get it. Like it's an extreme privilege position for me that I have all the things lined up for me. I wouldn't say it's lucky because I, th- I think like the harder I work, the luckier I get. But to line up, and I, I want this for every human on the planet, but but I, I totally get that it is very difficult to line them up. But if you can line up your values with your with your like with your joy of like that way and your like your capabilities your productivity like your ability to create if you can line all those things up the way you do things what you enjoy doing and the perceived value of what you're doing all three together into one package then then i think you're you're like you're really living right and i want everybody to be really living it seems like that's the jet from the people i know at retro it seems like that general mindset is like you know the the culture sort of at retro, right? It seems like from what I've seen, people at retro are so into the mission that it's not even work. Like I have talked with a few of your your team and they go and will do experiments at odd hours and whatnot. And you know, normally that's Netflix and beer time, but when, when it's when it's your when it's your passion and you know it's what you're good at, right? Why not work at odd hours? Why not pursue it when you want to, right? It's it seems like less of a I don't want to say like less of a forced thing on on the people at retro, but like it seems like when people show up to work at retro, they're they're like, oh I'm so happy I'm at work today. You know, like it, it may, maybe yeah, not. I mean, it's, a, it's a part of that is like I would love to take responsibility for that. Like for creating like a highly enabled and exciting atmosphere for people. Yeah. I remove roadblocks so that when they do apply some like iota of work that there there is there ends up being some like f of iota significant like chunk of rewarding out, outcome you know so like giving people resources and the space to do their work can make make it more exciting and like make sure there's nothing oppressive bureaucracy like stultifying authoritarianism stuff like that but i you know so maybe i can't take credit credit for a little bit of that but 
I think there, there's also just sort of like, it's also just kind of cheating that I have like a selection bias and people I hire who like that also helps, right? If someone's like really pumped about doing this kind of work or versus not, like that's a decision criteria for hiring. Exactly. Um, yeah. And like, I think it still furthers my values around that. I think I'd actually call them values. Like I really truly want people to be able to pursue things that they're passionate about and value and also to be growing continuously in the process of doing that. There's something, some weird thing about the derivative that seems like also a value. Maybe, maybe it's kind of like related to the sort of the sort of Buddhist thing. Like there is no destination. There's only the journey and the journey. There's something about the journey of just like continuously learning and growing and improving. That's not like I want to get X amount smart and achieve Y capabilities by such and such a date doesn't really, doesn't really seem like it works or like, I don't know, it just feels a little, like a little sad to me, but like every year you look back and like, holy crap, I learned so much. Like what, who I am now compared to who I was when I first joined retro or two years ago at retro, I was like, I could hardly imagine that I would have had all the abilities and new perspective and mastery of myself and, and this kind of thing. So that's, that's part of a bias. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Like like selection, but you know, that, that, that contributes, right? Like, like the, the perspective you have and the type of person you want contributes to the great culture you have. And it's, well, the other thing that you guys have that probably contributes is your awesome facilities and your, you know, you guys do have a very big investor in Sam Altman who gave you guys a nice, nice runway. Right. And so can you kind of talk about, you know, I, I, I know, you know, this is kind of a tough time for biotech, but you guys are operating in a different position. So, you know, can you kind of talk about like what, what you're able to do and what your goals are with the funding that you've received? I guess it was two years ago now. So, you know, where, where are you on the timeline and, you know, what's, what's kind of on the horizon for retro with the, the capital that you guys raised? Yeah, we presently have many years of runway, which is for sure a privilege. I've seen a number of economic cycles happen during my career, I guess. You know, I kind of rode, rode up the dot-com bubble and then saw it burst. And then there's, a, there's another one in between and saw that burst. And then we had another run-up that was like peaking pretty hard around 2001, 2021. So my instincts now are like, yeah, raise money. When it feels like that, raise money. But don't spend it like an idiot. Like, because it's always going to come around again. And so I'm in kind of a, kind of, a, kind of a weird paradoxical founder in the sense that we're at, at present super well-funded, but we don't spend money like crazy. So like we hire people because we really need them for very specific things. I definitely don't want an organization that's just like big because it looks impressive. It's like a number of, number of employees or something like that. In fact, in some ways, the smaller a team is, the more exciting it is to be part of it. Right. You have more influence on your particular area, fewer well, layers of management. Quite less bureaucracy too, just what we were talking sure. about. Absolutely. So presently we're at a size still, and I think at least through the next through the next doubling, at least I can still do this. We all, everybody inside writes updates for everyone else every week. We call them figments and updates. What do you mean updates? Like you summarize your week. Okay. Above and below a dotted line. And above are things that you definitively completed that are like accomplishments. So it's not like met with Illumina about the next set of kits that we might want to order. That is not an accomplishment. <laughs> Meetings are not accomplished. I like to think about anything that's above the line is something that if you imagine scaling it, things get better. So it's like, you know, I met with, if you, let's say you were to like 100 exit, like how much better would 
retro B or like our right. success on mission met with vendor. You scale that hundred X. It's like, nope, <laughs> that very much fails that criterion. Probably hurts. Yeah. Probably hurts the company. And, but it's like, if it's like finished qPCR verification of this of the gene expression for this particular cell transformation that we're trying to bring about. And I actually don't care whether it's like we confirmed it or we denied it. I tend to not like it. Well, I did this experiment and I got noise and I was not really sure what the answer is. Like that to me, that's a bad experiment, but a good experiment can be, we really hoped this thing was true and it's proven false because I have really clear data that it's false. Okay, great. You did really good work. The more things you can kill, the less time we're going to waste pursuing them. If you do, if you got a hundred times more of that kind of thing done in a week, hell yeah, that pushes us forward a lot. So that, those are kind of above the line things. And then if you want to comment on like some of the papers you're reading, we have a we have an internal paper repo that has you know hundreds and hundreds of papers on it, and people comment on them, and other people can read the comments because they're shared internally. Yeah, so they may list some of the papers they've read and the, some of the conclusions from them, or a lot of people will list the meetings they went to, and, and they kind of kind of track them. And like, it's it's interesting for others to see. Oh, this is these are the meetings this other person hangs out in. Uh, hangs out, not exactly the word I meant, but like. This is this is the sort of surface area of contact that they have. It's just good to know. But also people look at it and be like, I was in 13 meetings last week. No wonder. It's just interesting to have them all collected in one place. And you see like, I see people servoing that number. Like if they have in their head that like 10% of time in meetings is about the max that they want to do. And they are, you know, they're working say 50 hours a week and they're in more than five hours worth of meetings, then then they can dial it back, but it creates, it creates, it's a place to also just have that awareness about, right. about stuff people. Right. Yeah. You know, sorry. No, we also have a section for like what isn't working well, which is a type of information that's often hidden. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, this is not, it's not glamorous to talk about it, but having a section there that people can see every week and you can see like droplet generator in the DPCR shut down for some reason. We have no idea why someone can just pipe up on Monday and say, Hey, I've seen this happen like three times. I think it's, they tend to crap out when it's when it's more than twenty five C in the lab. Is that is that a warm lab or you know whatever? Sure. So it's like it's like you're it's like a self correcting mechanism within your team that you're you've like kind of set, set or like you know you can correct mistakes without having to go top down. Like you know it can be like you know peer to peer collaboration on things. It seems like but there's so much peer to peer collaboration. Like people read people read other figments from all across the company. They, they know what other people are doing. They know how fast other people are moving or how slow they're moving, mostly fast. And But I think that it's I, I'm really into like what's not working or what I found hard kind of sections because typically what happens is like people, like I was saying before, have this sort of instinctive impulse to like mm, not talk about that kind of stuff because it might make them look bad or kind of not be glamorous. But people put something down in that section and then there's an outpouring of support from other people comment and this is all in google docs so then there's like throughout the whole week there's like comments happening in the margins of these documents where someone's like oh i didn't know you guys had that working already is it like this blah blah, blah. and there's comments back and forth and like there's just no other place for that to happen typically in a company that right. i found I mean, i've run this you know this probably my, my fourth fourth company and like how did communication get done and there's like you know there's like group meetings periodically you know there's like monthly meetings or there's people kind of going around and asking questions one at a time but they those meetings tend to be fairly full already and it's hard to have time for that and there's something just really magical about asynchronous communication because meetings 
something about meetings just really sucks. Like they, like you're stuck there. And the, the smaller the meeting is, the better, the more nimble it is, the more of a, of a dynamic discussion you can have, bounce ideas back and forth, get agreement of the people present, and then just go. And they tend to be more exciting, but there are fewer, but the, the span of cross connection is really small. Like, you know, you can have a four person meeting, which is a great size. But if you want this sort of like, n squared effect of people being able to reach the, the other people then you have to have if you have like 20 people in a meeting and it's an hour-long meeting then each person has at most on average three minutes to even say anything and all the other people are waiting around for the other 57 minutes like oh this is kind of boring i'm not really participating fidgeting in your chair and, and wishing they were back in the lab or whatever so it, I think it really helps cut down on the need for for synchronous meeting time to have asynchronous communication methods. Right, right. Well, so when you guys do meetings at Retro, is it like are, are you so so generally what are they about? Are they like you're, you're you're figuring out like new pharmaceutical pathways to go through, biotech pathways to pursue, or is it more like hey this this was a problem yesterday in this experiment and we need you three in this room to figure it out or like what what are the what are the typical meetings that are for people that are usually efficient and, and useful because i agree with you 100 percent in all the in all the positions i've had where i'm on a meeting with you know where i'm not speaking it's just a, way, a complete waste of time you know so I mean, it's hard to generalize i think most of the meetings are here's our data here's the data from two days ago or, or from last week or from this afternoon and then what does it mean for what we're about to do like here's the data and it's just not frigging working for some reason. What do I do? What do I do differently? Here's the data about this experiment. What experiment, uh, you know, should we do next week? Should we, should we play it more conservative and take, take a smaller incremental step because we tried to test three variables and they all got conflated and it's kind of like kind of muddied. So should we fall back and just try to test one variable? In the next experiment, or should we be adventurous? How much should we scale it up? Mm. If we're, if we're we're testing like twelve conditions, and you know, or like like twenty four total samples that we're testing, and we're testing you know like two different variables. Maybe we should double it and test a third variable. We can do ANOVA across all of those cases, and then getting input from people. So that. in these kind of like yeah, it seems like these are kind of like week to week kind of meetings that you know are are kind of tailored to the specifics of, you know, the data that you received or the experiment that you conducted. Are these conversations happening? Are, are you in all these conversations? Because you mentioned you had five sort of, I think you said like CSO type people. Are that, What role did these, you know, I guess heads of whatever department or sector, well, I don't know how you guys classify it, but like, are, 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 is there collaboration at this kind of second level for you? Or how, how involved are you in these kind of data? Sure. I would say I'm probably in about a third of those right now used to be all of them not enough time uh, yeah not enough time and like i also talk too much and like people pay too much attention to me so i think i have like you know probably equal amount of curiosity to a lot of people but i may ask a question about you know why dnmt dnmt 3b instead of dnmt 3a for this field but then people will too much stop and explain to me which will slow the meeting down and you know, to some degree, there's a value to teaching me because I'm a crux point and I have like a like an overall synthesis position and I can draw connections easier from one group to the next. But I think I think it's about I think it's about the right number. I like my greatest fear is ending up being this totally out of it CEO who's just like buzzword compliant and just like saying vacuous things in gross generalizations that aren't really grounded in reality. So I like to continuously understand 
as much of all the science that's going on as possible. So I read all the figments. I think I'll keep reading all the figments until we're at least a hundred and comment on them. And so, so you said a hundred. So what's so? What are your plans to scale retro? I mean, you said the next doubling. You mentioned that before. What What do you think the you know, like what, when do you think the retro team is going to be, you know, at full capacity? What number do you think that is? I don't know. That might be a loaded question. Probably at like maybe somewhere around 10 or 20,000. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the right answer. Yeah. Well, what, what do you, what do you think? Like, like, do you have like milestones for that? So is that like, you know, we need to get program X, you know, the, the plasma phoresis program off the ground, you know, in the next year we need, you know, like, like, what, what what's the team going to look like? You know, next year maybe. You know, are you, are you looking to scale quickly, or what's the what's the timeline in your head there? Yeah, so I try not to set a metric around team size because we are continuing to react to the the accomplishments and results that we're getting. So I it's like I, an it's like an add as you need type. I hire into like what is exactly the need for this particular program. Right. And, you know, if a particular program becomes much more heavily computational, then maybe I need to add someone to the comp bio group, which is presently like seven and a half people. Seven and a half. Yeah. I think it's because Jose is sort of like half computational. Actually, I could probably call it eight because also there are two what lab people who are really into to doing like computational data analysis, which I adore that like one of the things that we hire for is people who span disciplines right and also part of part of that is back to that that bias for quote-unquote good data that i was mentioning before where i like the this like this fear that i was talking about like if if there's bad data then like bad things happen like we don't get funded if that's the company level or a particular program gets shut down but we apply a strict criterion to people that we hire that they're extremely versatile and have already accomplished multiple things in 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 like diverse biological fields not even biological entirely and that means that if 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 we hit a a roadblock in a particular therapeutic direction that we're going and like really the right answer is to shut that down that by and large these people are not out of jobs and they're not on the street and starving to death and like in that like fear position that we get from the way this society is structured wow they, they just they can flow into other groups okay I, I like that must be nice to work at retro with that in the back of your mind that's yeah well i mean it's not like i mean yeah. or anything like if people are slow we fire them but it's an extra layer of security though the idea is very clearly that we're in it for this mission, right? And we're not hiring you just specifically as like the specialist in this particular cell type. And if we decide to kill this cell type, you're on the street. Huh. So I mean, so you talked about pretty much everybody at Retro has accomplished something or has you know proven their capacity at some level. So like, what what do you usually look for when when hiring? Like, are you looking for people who have completed a PhD, like that kind of accomplishment, or not necessarily? What, what's the criteria that you probably personal bias for me since i was in the middle of a phd program at mit and it's like i was just like this whole enterprise is too slow I, i'm out of here <laughs> i'm gonna go like like do things i mean you mentioned alex trapp yeah that's, that's uh, what I was about to say. my entire computational biology team and he's freaking brilliant and motivated and um, and yeah incredible pianist um that's diversity and he has a he's, he has an undergrad degree it doesn't really matter to me as long as someone is incredibly capable and motivated and like functional i guess so 
I guess one of the one of the two directions this could go. One program we recently launched is this graduate research fellowship, which is meant to be an alternative that people can take if they're thinking about, well, I want to be a scientist. And I guess the only way to become a scientist is uh, rather than being stuck as a lab technician for the rest of my life is to go get a PhD. So I guess I have to go get a PhD and pipette the things that someone else says I should for five years or whatever. So we have this graduate research fellowship now, which is intended to be an alternative to that, where you can become scientist because you're going to get some pretty intense side-by-side training with scientists here at Retro within three years. And is the idea to kind of elevate them to like a position at Retro, or is it just to kind of give them this experience and training and keep them in the Retro orbit or, you know, is this like, like I don't want to control someone's life, right? They should, they should do what they're excited about, but if they make it all the way through, I mean, if they're not good, we'll just fire them. But if they make it all the way through, and I don't mean that cold hearted way, but just like we, we, we have, and we're, we're like, I use good in sort of a, in sort of a loose, a loose connotation. And I don't mean that they're bad people. I just mean, if they fit the way that we are going after this incredibly challenging mission and they're productive and they work well with the rest of the people and they like, tackle challenges they don't whine about things rather than just go solve them that's what i mean by good like capable and functional right people that fit the culture and the team and the vision and the mission yeah and so if they if they do that for three years then from our perspective they're awesome like they should for sure stay there's gonna there's guaranteed to be something they can do and you know we can like by that time, if they hit all of the milestones of our fellowship program, which involve becoming more and more scientifically independent and being able to design your own experiments, debug your own experiments, at that point, they are literally a scientist from the perspective of what that means right. for a program. Like if you're a program leader and there are like five different things for you to chase down in order to like get to the bottom of how to get this program to the next stage. You can either like go through all the mental work and design the experiment step by step and do some of the background research and read the paper and extract the thing. Or you can just very modularly hand to one person, figure out this whole area. It's a big question mark to me. And they can just grab it and run with it. And that is, that's sort of like the scientist threshold, I'd say. And if they've made it to that point, then for sure, awesome. Like they should stay. But if like they're getting to that point and they're still like, I don't know what to do, you know, at the end of three years, then then like they should they probably sit somewhere else better. Right. Well, do you mean you want to be developing, you know, independent, you know, scientists who can, you know, contribute in their in you know in an independent manner where you're not kind of walking them through the process every day. Right. I mean, that takes, that takes time away from everybody else too, you know? So, 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 so my, I just have another question on that though. So are these graduate fellowship people, the, the people who get into this program, are they going to be part of retros current approach, like the, 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 the plasma phoresis autophagy and reprogramming, or is this going to be, they're going to be doing independent experiments where they're kind of creating, like, what's the, What's the no, scope? In that regard, in that regard, it's it's very much, I guess, not like a PhD. Like they'll be streaming into the the, the work that's happening and in, in the like the focused, focused retro programs. In terms of like the volume of of like capabilities that they'll be gaining, like in terms of like theory and practice, it will be equivalent to to a PhD. I think a lot of people go into a PhD program and they're they're a little bit kind of left to sink or swim. 
you know, it's it can be a bit of a lonely experience. There are other people in the lab, but the other people in the lab are seeking their own incentives and trying to get more papers on their CV. And you know, they'll they'll teach you like a, a protocol or give you tips on protocols and that kind of thing. But it's a lot less like full-on team orientation. And I think you learn faster. Like there's a higher person-to-person information flow. And that is one of the main sources of learning in biology, which is just hugely dominated by subtlety of technique more than any other field that I've experienced. Well, it's going back to the small teams aspect that we were, or the, you know, the, the only hiring for what's needed aspect, keeping the communication lines small or, 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 you know, not too many. I mean, you know, it sounds like these, these, these fellowship, the, the graduate fellowship cohort will, will be working like really closely with the heads of these programs. Right. I mean, it sounds like it's very hands-on with the Absolutely. whole thing. Right. So that's cool. So my, my last question is, you know, might as well promote it. When, when, when are you got, when are you planning to launch the, the fellowship? Is it, is it already launched? It's launched. Yeah. I mean, right. we're starting to get a bunch of applications, which is really exciting. Okay. And later on, hopefully I'll have a, like, an even more exciting addition to add to it, but that, that'll probably be a couple months before I can do that. How can people apply? Just go on the retro website. Yeah. Retro.bio slash careers. All right. All, right. All, our, all of our opportunities are there. Yeah, for anybody interested, go to retro.bio slash careers. Yeah, definitely submit your application. All right, Joe. So I think I'm looking at the clock. We're almost out of time here. I don't want to take you too. I don't want to take too much of your time unless you unless you have time. I just saw a text pop up on my screen that somebody's going to be three minutes late to my next meeting. So <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Three more minutes. All right. So with three more minutes on the clock, we didn't really even get to touch on the political aspect or the regulatory aspect, which is something I do want to talk with you about. We'll maybe have to do a part two sometime in the future. But can you just generally give your vision for this longevity field? I know it's that's, again, another kind of load. I mean, the, the big arc is that we are making new medicines. We're co- going after new targets that are t- typically haven't been addressed by pharma yet because we're like sort of the first translational implementations of aging biology as the, the academic field and then translating that into people. And thus, the medicines and the targets are relatively untested. So new things are new things are risky just because they are unknown. Bodies are complicated. So initially, we have to go after sort of what I call proxy indications for aging, things that relate to the same aging pathway, but that are more acute or more more urgent, I guess, for for that patient where the urgency then warrants the additional risk of trying something untested. And then once those, work for those patients and also like are shown to have like a safe side effect profile, then they can continue to expand to say larger or less acute indications. And then ultimately go on to become used as preventative medicine, which hopefully all medicine someday will be almost all. And that's, that's the grand arc basically about, I think the, the aging, aging biology therapeutics world. And I think one of the the bits of nuance that can help thinking about this from a regulatory perspective is that the oversimplification I hear from people saying that, well, we shouldn't be held to having to prove efficacy, rather, rather we should only have to show safety. That I think that I think that the current regulatory apparatus in of the health authorities of most countries tends to think about that as a ratio, like what is the what is the risk benefit ratio 
right? And then, and like, well, this is a fairly severe disease, so we can we can accept somewhat severe side effects or risks. But I think that they tend to err, like at the wrong ratio. Like you would expect that that you would just like keep that ratio like something like one to one, right? So that if like it's twice as if if like a thousand people die because you don't provide the therapy in a given time or a thousand you know like 500 people will die by trying it too soon or you know if that balance goes back and forth i think there's probably i don't know an exact number and i'm not sure it's well well researched but um from the small data i've seen that's probably off by a factor of 10 like 10 times more people die from not releasing something than from that experience side effects from something that's released too early onto that same patient population. So I think the nuance for this conversation is what is the ratio and how how should health authorities think about potentially looking at the the interplay between various levels of of strength of informed consent versus that ratio? Because if you imagine having really weak informed consent, just the patients are like, oh whatever, I'll try anything. Then you want to push that ratio toward the conservative side because it because it ties into liability and also just like personal fear for the people producing the therapy and like as we know from Daniel Kahneman's body of work, people by about at least a factor of three overweight anything negative compared to something positive as a future event, even if they're measured in the same terms, even if it's just money, for instance, like you feel three times worse about losing a dollar than you do about gaining a dollar. So I think the nuance around this conversation could be if we wanted to create an environment where people, where it felt more like a right to try kind of thing. And then accordingly, you have to hugely increase the strength of informed consent within that environment. And then in response, the like the the ac- the, re- the improved access is a change on the ratio between risk and benefit. I think that's a kind of conversation that health authorities could actually have pretty openly. Right, that's a ratio. And as a ratio, I, I wonder. I, I mean, it seems so simple. The risk reward ratio. I don't know what the statistics would be. I guess like side effects to. I guess patient saved. Right. I guess that's what you said before, but. Yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of metrics for this kind of thing already. You know, and people talk about qualies. You know, there's life and death. Some people have like risks of they're going to die. Everybody's going to die of aging on the present trajectory. But, you know, so if people are later in life and you look at their actuarial actuarial curve and you you say you have a 20% chance of dying this year, then you could think about what is their chance of dying from some therapeutic that they want to have a right to try. And if, 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 you know, if it's less than 20% or minus that ratio, whatever that ratio is, great, let it happen. If they're a six-year-old kid and their chance of dying is like 1.01% or whatever in the next year, like you don't, you know, the, yeah, yeah, you, you don't mess with that, you know? Right. So anyway, that's my parting thought for you. <laughs> it's all right. Well, we definitely have more to talk about, you know, considering the work that we've done with, you know, in this space in Montana, I think we've, yeah, done. that's really interesting. You know, this is probably, that's the, probably the kind of conversation that needs to be had in the Montana state legislature. So, you know, we should, well, let, let's do this, Joe. Let's, let's do a part two. We'll figure out, you know, what the actual, what the risk reward ratio should be for each age group. Well, I'll do some research. 
I don't know if I'll be able to handle that all myself. That seems like a complicated question, but let's well, do that. It's not just age, it's also health status. Health status, right, right, right. Both are very, they're linked, right? But yes, yes, you're right. Anyways, though, let's do part two. But I want to say thank you for joining us for this iteration, this this episode of the H-Band podcast. And I'm sure our listeners will be waiting for round two. And I, I know I'm excited to uh, make that happen. So okay, great. Thanks so much for having me. It's a fun conversation. Thank you, Joe, for making the time to join us today. And for those of you listening at home, I hope you found this conversation as enlightening and as informative as I did. If you have anyone you would like to see make an appearance on our podcast, you can send your suggestions to us at info at a4li.org. HSPAN will return in a couple of weeks, but until then, let's live long and prosper.